quite excited to be here speaking with you guys today. I am less excited, however, that I'm joining Mark's sermon series on Here I Stand because uh, I feel suddenly a great deal of, uh, of pressure about what I may or may not want to share with you tonight. But uh, I believe I have something to share with you that, that has spoken to me very strongly over the past few weeks, so I wanted to share it with you. And really, Mark's, uh, Mark's entire series called Here We Stand, it's really been us spending a number of weeks answering the question of where do we as believers or where do we as followers of Jesus, where do we stand? Where do we stand in light of the world that we live in? And where do we stand, especially in this time of restrictions and lockdowns and fear? But I would suggest not only in this time of restrictions, lockdown, and fear. It's bigger than that. And maybe what the question I'm going to try to answer tonight is simply to ask, how do we know where we stand? Now, if you've just joined us, you've got a lot of homework to do. You've got a lot to get caught up on because Mark's been speaking on this for several weeks. And he began with a message called In Their Shoes. And really, it was a message about showing compassion to others because we don't know the journey that have brought them into our lives, but we know that God asks us to show compassion no matter what. And then he spoke on this, this uh, phrase, good and angry. And it was kind of a double-edged phrase. It was basically saying that if you're going to get angry, make sure it's for a good reason. Make sure it's for a righteous cause. But he also talked about how if you're going to be uh, good and angry, that you need to make sure that that anger doesn't lead you to sin. You need to remain good in all you do. And then I think my favorite of the series so far was called Light the Wick. And the Light the Wick had a simple, a simple concept. It basically said we should, take our, we should be a people of good deeds. And as a people of good deeds, we should be intentional about connecting those good deeds to the good news so that people can see a good God. And I mean, Mark shared those cards. That's exactly what he was talking about, that those good deeds meant something to those people who received them, and now they understand better who the, who, what a great God that we serve. And then last week, Mark talked about freedom. Freedom, basically, when you need to choose between God and man, you need to choose God. And he, and he spoke, uh, I love the way he spoke about movies that move us. And I think, though, he missed a very important one. For me, anyway, he missed my favorite movie that moves me, <laughs> Babe. I said I wasn't going to do this, but it, it's, just, it's just the story of this little pig. And he just, he just wants to be free. He wants to be free from the constraints of living in that barn. And he wants to be free from that future of eventually being bacon. He just wants his freedom. And that's a movie that moves me. And so that spoke to me last week. And, you know, so as I said, you've got a lot of homework to do if you're just joining us. But uh, the good news is that you can watch or listen to all of this online. And uh, I don't mind saying that, to be honest, if you're just starting out tonight, that's probably okay. Because this will probably be the best message in the series. <laughs> and I'm just kidding about saying probably. Anyway. <laughs> You might be tempted to say, you know what, this is a series about where Mark stands. This is a series about where the church stands, but I suggest to you it's not. It's about knowing where you stand, and it's so important that you know it before you have to make tough decisions, because in that moment, we often lose sight of what's important, and this is more than a COVID message, and I believe that because I believe the time of easy Christianity is coming to a close. 
that we're coming to a point in our society where Christians will not be afforded the privileges we've had for the past thousand years. And I think many of us can see that erosion taking place already. And so uh, when we really talk about making these tough decisions, I really think what we're talking about is the opportunity to live life without regret. And I know that regret is one of those opportunities that we have so many opportunities to do it wrong and so few opportunities to do it right. And, you know, it's those decisions we wished we could take back, those decisions we wish we could do over. But I know for me, it's more often the decision that I wish I had made. It's not a wrong decision. It was the lack of any decision. It was not acting when I should have acted. It was not standing up when I needed to stand up. And it was not drawing a line in the sand when I needed to. And so I think there's a great example. I want to start right off the bat without much preamble. There's a great example of someone in the Old Testament who always seemed to know how to be on the right side of any decision. And that person was Daniel. And you may think as we go through this message, you may think, I feel like I've heard this before. And that's because part of it you have. This is actually a sermon that Mark and I did a series called Guardrails about two and a half years ago. And it was the role of Daniel in that message. I've kind of brought back for this message because I just really think it spoke to me about where we, should, what, where we should be drawing lines in our lives. And I mean, Daniel is certainly somebody who did not live an easy life, but he was also somebody who did not live a life filled with regret. And that's because he always seemed to be on the correct side, on the right side, on the godly side of any decision he had to make. And let me just give you a short list of what he went on in his life, and we'll see if we agree with that. I mean, if we just look at the bullet points, you know, as a young man in his early teens, he was living in a country at war. And even worse than that, he was living in a city under siege. In a city under siege, basically there were three things that was equally capable of killing you. There was the enemy that encircled your city, and they were constantly probing the walls and looking for a breach that they could get in. And if they did get in, then the massacre was on. But there was also the gnawing hunger that started from the very first day because once that siege was in place, there was no more food coming into your city, no more crops coming from the fields. And so hunger would, would start off right away, and people would eventually get to the point where hunger was more, they were more afraid of that hunger than they were of the army surrounding them. And then thirdly, there would be the disease that would make their way into that city over time because, you know, the, the, these seizures weren't just a bunch of guys standing around in a circle. They, they would divert rivers. They would poison wells. They would actually affect the water table so your wells would dry up, and whatever water you had in your city soon became limited or stagnant. And so it would be such a weird feeling that you would actually be happy the day you heard that you were surrendering to the enemy. You would be so relieved that that time had finally come. And that's the position Daniel found himself in. He's found himself being captured by an enemy in the city of Jerusalem. And he watched helplessly as all of his family's wealth and all of his family's possessions were stripped away. And the temple, the temple that he loved so much, was ransacked. And all of the gold was cut up and taken away. You know, he was forced to leave his homeland as, as a captive, and he was forced to travel back to Babylon as an indentured servant, which is really a nice way of saying a slave. And just as he thought it couldn't get worse, when he arrived there, he found out that he had to become a vegetarian. And even worse than that, he had to become a vegan and just eat vegetables and drink water. I mean, it was getting rough. And I mean, imagine this. He was sentenced to death not once, but twice by his own boss. Now, my, I get along great with my boss. I can't imagine that, but I kind of imagine being sentenced to death not once, but twice by my wife. And, and I just imagine the betrayal. 
You know, he saw his friends thrown into a fire for literally standing up for what was right. And finally, as an old man, as a punishment for doing what was right, he was thrown into a lion's den. I mean, you think about that list of what Daniel lived through, and you might think, you know what? This is not, this is not a tale of someone who was on the right side of decisions. It's, it's more of a cautionary tale. It's more of an example of what can go wrong in your life, but I don't think that's true. I don't think that's true because of what I didn't mention was all of the things that happened to Daniel in between these events. And we eventually find Daniel not, not uh, just doing well in the new land of Babylon, but he was actually at one point second in command to the king. He had grown into the government role that he was given, and he was second in command in the entire country. And so when we look back at Daniel's life, we should realize that we're talking about 2,500 years ago. 2,500 years ago, and we would call the place Iraq where he was taken, but they called it Babylon. And in 605 BC, Babylon was led by a king named Nebuchadnezzar. This is a picture of what we think he looked like. And if that doesn't ring a bell for you, you probably recognize him more in this role. And I always like to say Nebuchadnezzar. It's fun to say, but really hard to spell. But Nebuchadnezzar was in the war, in the middle of a war with Egypt, of all places, and when his army arrived in Judah, and when he came to Judah, and when he surrounded the city of Jerusalem, he expected them to surrender. They were a small, weaker country, and he was the dominant superpower of that age. And so when he arrived, you can see on the map up here, when he arrived, he kind of took the long route. You might think, like, where was he going? He's coming all the way from the Persian Gulf over to Egypt. But of course, back then, you didn't just cut corners through deserts. And so he had to follow the rivers. So he followed the Euphrates and eventually the Jordan. And that brought him to Judah. That brought him to Jerusalem. And his plan was simple. He would stay there a while, organize himself, feed his army off all of the food that was available in this new land. And then he would attack Egypt, which was his eventual goal. And, uh, and when he arrived, he was not happy that uh, Jerusalem refused him entry. And so that's when the siege began, and that lasted for quite some time. And eventually, when they surrendered, he was not the, the, the uh, live and let live sort of guy. He was angry because of what they had done. So he took 10,000 of the people of Jerusalem, the best of the best, and he took them back to Babylon as prisoners. And this was only one of three campaigns that eventually, on his third trip there, he burned Jerusalem, almost all of it, to the ground and the temple was destroyed, that same temple that King Solomon had built. And I, I say this with such conviction because we know this is fact. We know these events are true. We know this because the Bible itself is a historic document, and we can read it there, but we also know that secular historians and archaeologists, they can all track back to these times and these dates. And I think it's important we remember that these people were real people, and these places were real places, and these battles were real battles. This is not a story. This is fact. This is history. And we're going to read about it in two sources. We're going to read about the history of what happened in a book called Second Kings. And we're going to read about this life of Daniel, the personal side of what happened to Daniel in the book of Daniel. And we're going to go to both places, but we're going to start in the first, uh, the first book of Daniel, verse 1 and 2. It says this, During the third year of the king Jehoiakim in Judah, King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon came to Jerusalem and besieged it. The Lord gave him victory over King Jehoiakim of Judah and permitted him to take some of the sacred objects from the temple of God. So Nebuchadnezzar took them back to the land of Babylonia and placed them in the treasure house of his God. So that's pretty straightforward, but there's something missing. So we go to a whole other historic document to pick up some additional details. So let's jump over to 2 Kings 24. It says this, 
At the time, the officers of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, advanced on Jerusalem and laid siege to it. And Nebuchadnezzar himself came up to the city while his officers were besieging it. Jehoiakim, king of Judah, his mother, his attendants, his nobles, and his officials all surrendered to him. In the eighth year of the reign of the king of Babylon, he took Jehoiakim prisoner. As the Lord had declared, and Nebuchadnezzar removed the treasure from the temple of the Lord and from the royal palace, and he cut up the gold articles that Solomon, king of Israel, had made for the temple of the Lord. And then this verse is so key. He carried all Jerusalem into exile, all the officers and fighting men, all the skilled workers and artisans, a total of 10,000. In fact, only the poorest people of the land were left behind. Now, this is so important. It's so important to the role of Daniel and what's going to happen next. You see, we see that King Nebuchadnezzar was actually kind of, a, kind of a brilliant guy. Everybody knew he was a great military leader. Again, Babylon was a superpower at this time with a huge, huge landmass. But he was really more clever when it came to kind of social and cultural policy. You see, where most, when he decided to scour the city and collect up the best of the best, the trademen, the best warriors, the rich, the noble, the artisans, uh, he would collect up the philosophers and politicians, anybody in the royalty, and every king would do that. Every conquering king would do that. But what was different is every other conquering king would have either put those people to death or sold them off into slavery, and he would have just locked them away. But Nebuchadnezzar was really wise this way, and what he did instead is he took them back to Babylon, and although they were slaves, they were captured. They weren't treated that way. They were treated quite well, and they would have arrived in Babylon in good shape. And that's because he had a very specific plan for them. He had a training program that he ran where he took the best people from every land that he conquered, and he took those people, and he basically turned them into Babylonians. He taught them what it was to be Babylonian, and then he used them. So the number of you know, excellent warriors he had amongst his troops would grow because he would have brought those from Jerusalem, brought those from Judah, and entered them into that service. If you were a great blacksmith, you were now a great blacksmith. You weren't locked away. You weren't treated poorly. You were now a great blacksmith within Babylonia. And that was true for all of these people. And, and what makes it amazing is that Daniel was picked as one of these people, not because of his skills, not because of his trade, but because of his potential. And here's the key point that we need to understand. And this is why we went back into that whole section. Daniel would have been happy to be there. And that sounds shocking. That doesn't sound right at all, that Daniel would have been happy to arrive there. But here's the thing. Daniel would have known, as everybody would have known, that he was lucky to be alive. He probably should have been dead. And yes, he was a slave, but he was a slave literally, literally living in a palace. And he was going to have to learn their customs, Babylonian customs and language, and their religious traditions. He would eat their food, speak their language. He would dress in their clothes and wear their haircuts. He would listen to their music. He would enjoy and appreciate their art. And all of this would be done willingly as he became a Babylonian. And Nebuchadnezzar was so good at doing this that he could actually take former enemies and turn them into his top people in his government. We won't get there tonight, but that's exactly what happened to Daniel. He was brought into this government. He was brought into this framework and he would have been turned into a Babylonian over the course of three years. And so we're going to pick it up in Daniel 1, the next verse is 3. It says this, so he's arrived, and it says, Then the king ordered Ashpenaz, chief of the court officials, to bring into the king's service some of the Israelites from the royal family and the nobility. These were young men without any physical defect. They were handsome, 
showing aptitude for every kind of learning. They were well-informed, quick to understand, and qualified to serve in the king's palace. And he would teach them the language and literature of the Babylonians. They could assign them a daily amount of food and wine from the king's own table. They were to be trained for three years, and after that, they would enter the king's service. And among those who were chosen were some from Judah, Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. And the chief official gave them new names. To Daniel, he called him Belteshazzar. To Hananiah, Shadrach. To Mishael, Meshach. And to Azariah, Abednego. And so Daniel and his friends are selected from the 10,000 that were brought back, a very small number. We're not going to go work and join the army or work in the, in the blacksmiths or work in the fields. A very small number of these people were going to be trained by the king himself in his own palace and explained there they would eat his food. They would learn from the smartest people of that culture, and they would, again, become Babylonians so they could one day enter the king's service. And the first thing that it mentions there is that Nebuchadnezzar gave Daniel a new name, which seems kind of strange, but he gave them the new name Belteshazzar. And Bel was the name of a Babylonian god. And so one of their many gods that they worshipped was named Bel, and Teshazzar simply meant, my God will provide for me. So Daniel had just been given a new name. A good, God-fearing boy from Jerusalem was suddenly given a new name, which literally meant that he belonged and his life was dedicated to the god Bel. And this would have been a huge insult. He would have been very upset by this. And, and here's what I think we would have expected him to do. I think we would have expected him to, to push back from the table and to stand up in a loud voice to yell out to everybody who would listen, my name is Daniel, not Belteshazzar, and I serve the one and only God, and I will never, never serve Bel. And then everybody from Judah would have looked at him, and they would have started a slow clap. They would have started a slow clap, and they would have started chanting his name, Daniel. Daniel, and they pick him up on his shoulders and they carry him around the table. Whenever I picture a palace, they have like an 80-foot-long table. They're going around the table chanting his name. It would have been this great moment of integrity for Daniel. And of course, the palace guard would have grabbed him and thrown him in a lion's den. But that's what I would expect Daniel to do. But he didn't. He seems to have accepted it. And maybe that's because, you know, we, uh, we really don't have a lot of choice in what people call us. Maybe that's because he just really realized that, you know what, to get along, maybe I need to go along. Maybe what I have to do, I'm, I'm, I'm a captured slave, basically. Maybe what I need to do is just keep my mouth shut. And I don't think I could have really faulted Daniel if that was true, because I wonder if I would have had the integrity to say anything, except thank you, sir. But that's not what Daniel, but, but Daniel just seemed to let it go, and I, and, and I find that confusing until we get to verse 9. And then we get to verse 9, it says this, but Daniel resolved not to defile himself with the royal food and wine, and he asked the chief official for permission not to defile himself in this way. So he didn't stay silent. He didn't just shut up. He, he had a problem with the food, and, and I don't know why the food was more of an issue than the name change, but it clearly was, and when you look at some other translations, this word resolved, in some other translations it says determined. Daniel determined or was determined not to eat the food. In the New King James, it says that Daniel purposed in his heart to refuse to defile himself. And my favorite in the NASB, as well as the Amplified, it simply says this, Daniel had made up his mind. And what's the issue with the food? I don't know. 
maybe it's just it wasn't kosher, right? Daniel was Jewish, and there's a lot of uh, law about food and what you can and can't eat uh, laid out in Leviticus and, and uh, in the Pentateuch, so maybe that was part of it. Maybe it would, the food had been prayed for, um, you know, for a Babylonian god, and he felt that was too far. But here's the thing. It doesn't matter why Daniel couldn't eat the food. What matters is that Daniel knew that it mattered, that Daniel had made up his mind that that was something he could not accept. And so here's what I see happening. Here's what I see happening. Daniel would accept what he could in order to be a good citizen. He would accept the name change. He would accept that he's now working for someone else. He would accept the change of language, the change of culture. He would accept the new haircut, the new clothes. He would accept what he could. But he would also draw a line in the sand because he knew that God's law was above man's law. So he drew a line in the sand, and then he would never compromise. And I think it's important to remember that Daniel doesn't know how this is going to work out. Daniel could not read the book of Daniel to see what happens at the end. Daniel had to go on faith that this is what he should do. And he put his life at risk. We're going to see in a second how easy it is to lose your head in this kingdom. He would have put his life at risk with this decision. But I think that Daniel stumbled upon, I shouldn't say stumbled upon, Daniel discovered a principle that I think uh, we all should pay attention to. And what he learned was this, that compromise does not make your problems go away. Compromise just weakens your resolve to resist. And so if we, look in, if we look at what happened, you know, temptation in our lives, you know, temptation doesn't go away when you give in. It simply makes you less likely to resist in the future. And so if you cheat, if you cheat on a test or your taxes or whatever, if you cheat, it's going to be easier to cheat a second time. If you lie to your spouse, it would be way easier to lie to your spouse a second time, I, I assume. Right? If you agree, or sorry, if you go off on somebody online and just give them a taste of their own medicine, how much easier is it for you to do that again a second time? If you trash talk somebody at work behind their back, how easy is it to do it a second time? And you know what? If you agree to bow down and worship a golden statue, how much easier would it be to do it again? And if you were willing to stop praying just for a month, stop praying, how much easier would it be for you to do that again? And if you agree that being a Jesus follower isn't that big a deal, if you accept that, that it's not part of your DNA, it's not part of who you are, and it's not essential to who you are, then how much easier would it be to compromise a second time? Because that's what Daniel recognized, that they could change his clothes, they could change his hair, they could change his habits, his language, they could change his culture, and they could even change his name but he had made up his mind that he would not or he could not eat that food. He was simply drawing a line in the sand. And so I have to wonder, where do I draw a line in the sand? Where in my life would I draw a line to say, I can't go any further than that? I can accept this, but that I can't. And I have to ask, where would you? Where would you say, this is, a, this is the point of which I'm not comfortable going past? This pits man against God, and I'm going to choose God. Because if now is not the time to think about things like that, I don't know if there ever will be a time. Because I think in Daniel's situation, we saw a man who lived out his life with integrity. But we also saw a man who would work hard to be a good citizen in, in the country he lived in, but we eventually saw him get to the point where he simply could not and would not go any further. 
And I want you to notice what it doesn't say in that, in that passage. It doesn't say that Daniel thought about it for a few days and then got back to them. It doesn't say that Daniel sought the advice of his friends. It doesn't say that he poured through the scriptures trying to look for answers. And it doesn't even say that Daniel prayed about it in that moment. What it does say is that he had made up his mind and so he took action. And again, without knowing how things were gonna work out, he, ch- he chose to trust God. And he chose to trust his conscience. And so he approaches Ashpenaz with a request. Now let's put this into context. Daniel is 15 years old. He's been taken captive by a powerful king. He's living in a palace and he's being treated really well. And everybody else there seems to be pretty happy with the way things are going. And so Daniel approaches his boss with a request. And this request must have sounded a lot like ingratitude. You, you probably should be dead. Instead, you're living in a palace. Instead of a life of servitude or in prison, instead, you're one day going to be an important member of, this, of King Nebuchadnezzar's council, of his government. And so it would have looked like a lot like ingratitude when he said what he did. But he, he asked Ashpenaz, he has this request, and I think what he should have expected was at least the back of the hand from Ashpenaz, if not a death sentence. This is not how things are done in Babylon. Here's lesson one of how to, how to be a good Babylonian citizen. You do as you're told. You don't argue with the king. But this is where the story gets really good because in the ne- very next verse, it says, now God, now God had given the chief of staff both respect and affection for Daniel. But I want to focus on those words, now God. You see, whenever you're le- reading scripture, you should always be looking for the now God or the but God, or the then God moment, because that's the moment when God intervenes in our lives. It happens with Jonah when he runs from God. It says, the Bible says, now God sends a storm. It happens with Noah following the flood, and the Bible says, then God remembered Noah. And it happens when David is hiding from Saul in the wilderness. The Bible says, but God hid David from him. The now God moment focuses on this idea that our choices for him, our choices for for the Lord, can actually allow him to direct our lives. It was Daniel's decision standing there in front of Ashmanif that changed the whole narrative. I mean, without that decision, without him speaking up to Ashmanif, there's no reason to write the book of Daniel. And and if not for Daniel drawing that line in the sand, if not for him speaking out, against eating that food. And remember, he used the word defile twice in one sentence. He was lucky to survive this encounter. But if not for that, he becomes like the 9,996 others. I'm going to give um, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego uh, a pass, and you'll see why in a minute. But he would have been just like the 9,996 other captives who simply fell into line and lived their lives the way they were ordered to. Now, the rest of the story goes pretty quick. It picks this up in Daniel, verse 10. It says, but he responded, this is Ashpenaz. He responded, I'm afraid of the, Lord my, uh, of the Lord the king who has ordered that you eat this food and wine. If you become fa- uh, pale and thin compared to the other youths your age, I'm afraid the king will have me beheaded. This is what the king is going to do to his most trusted advisor for not obeying. What would he do to Daniel? And then Daniel spoke with the attendant who had been appointed by the chief of staff to look after Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. And he said, please test us for 10 days on a diet of vegetables and water, Daniel said. And at the end of the 10 days, see how we look compared to the other young men who are eating the king's food. Then make your decision in light of what you see. The attendant agreed to Daniel's suggestion and tested them for 10 days. 
And at the end of the 10 days, Daniel and his three friends looked healthier and better nourished than any of the other young men who had been eating the food assigned by the king. So after that, the attendant fed them only vegetables instead of the food and wine provided for the others. And although that's a happy ending, it's not quite the ending. It continues. It says, God then gave. Here's that but God moment. God then gave these four men an unusual aptitude for understanding every aspect of literature and wisdom. And God gave Daniel the special ability to interpret the meaning of visions and dreams. And when the training period ordered by the king was completed, the chief of staff brought all the young men to King Nebuchadnezzar. And the king talked with them. And no one impressed him as much as Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. So they entered the royal service. And whenever the king consulted them in any matter requiring wisdom and balanced judgment, he found them 10 times more capable than any other magician, than any, sorry, not other, than any magician and enchanter in his entire kingdom. I don't know if you see it there, but what, what happened is, and it's, it's such a cool idea, that Daniel's line in the sand was the beginning of God's changing his life. That it was his decision to stand up and tell Ashpenaz that he could not do what he's being asked. That was the beginning of God giving these men good health and giving them the wisdom and giving them the ability to interpret dreams so that the story could continue. And without that, there's no Daniel in the lion's den. Without that, there's no Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the fiery furnace. None of these great stories of faith, we never get to that point if we don't see them taking this step. But here's the thing. I don't know why Daniel was okay with his name change, but he wasn't okay with eating the king's food. But Daniel knew. And Daniel had very clearly put some thought into this because it said he had made up his mind. It didn't say God gave him a word. It didn't say it just dawned on him. He had already made up his mind. And we know that much later on in David's life, uh, sorry, Daniel's life, when he was an old man, he once again came into a situation where he was forced to act based on a line he had already uh, drawn in the sand. And this time it was in response to a new law that a new king had just made. Nebuchadnezzar had moved on, had died, and Darius was now king. And Darius said, for the next 30 days, no one can pray to anyone, to any god, any person, any idol, unless it's to me. I don't know how you get away with that sort of stuff, but he just decided you can only pray to me. And I wish, I wish so much that Daniel had made another speech. I wish that Daniel had stood up and said, I can't do that. But we don't get to hear what he said but we definitely get to see what he did. And in Daniel 6.10, it says this, but when Daniel learned that the law had been signed, so he knew when he learned that the law had been signed, he went home and knelt down as usual in his upstairs room with his window open towards Jerusalem. And he prayed three times a day, just as he had always done, giving thanks to God. And you know, I, as much as I wish he'd made a big speech, and told everybody what he was going to do, I think his actions spoke a lot more clearly that he did not change who he was. He, once again, he was in a position where he could not accept. He'd made a career. Literally, his entire career was being a good member of Babylonian culture. He was a good citizen. He was an important man. As he said, at this point, he is only underneath Darius. Him and two other men are directly under Darius. And that's it. He'd obviously found a way to fit in, found a way to become a part of what was happening in Babylon. He must have had to accept so many things that maybe he didn't like, but he was okay with. And literally at that point, we get to this point where he simply says, 
but on this, I cannot compromise. On this, I cannot accept. And years before that, we know that uh, Daniel's best friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, were, they did get to make a big speech, and we do get to hear it. When they were told they had to bow down and pray to a new golden idol of Nebuchadnezzar, they said they couldn't. And keep in mind that these guys, again, were good citizens of Babylon. These were not three unknown men. These were men who worked for King Nebuchadnezzar in his kingdom as a part of his government. And think of it this way. They would have been speaking Babylonian when they said this. And in chapter 3, verse 16, it said, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego replied, O Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to defend ourselves before you. If we are thrown into the blazing furnace, the God whom we serve is able to save us. He will rescue us from your power, your majesty. But even if he doesn't, we want to make it clear to you, your majesty, that we will never serve your God or worship the gold statue that you have set up. And so what did Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego do? They accepted what they could in order to be a good citizen, but they drew a line in the sand, and they knew that God's laws were above man's laws. And when they had an opportunity to come up against that line drawn in the sand, they did not compromise. And last week, Mark did an excellent job of laying out the New Testament case of why we need to obey our leaders. He, read, uh, he included Romans 13, 1 to 7, but also Matthew 22, 21, Titus 3, 1 and 2, 1 Peter 2, 13 to 17, 1 Timothy 2, 1 to 3. There are literally dozens of others that very clearly say that we are to follow the instructions of our government. It really points to this idea of us being good citizens. We're required to be a good citizen. And it's not based on whether you like your leaders or you voted for your leaders. It's not based on what you think you know better than they know. It's simply the fact that God has put them in that position. But Mark also laid out very clearly that there is a limit to that, that if the law of man contradicts the law of God, then we have to choose God. But I want you to think about how high a bar that is, how high a threshold that is. And I really struggle with how to, how to put this into words, how I feel about it. And then, uh, for the strangest of reasons, um, a song popped into my head. And uh, back in 1977, when I was six years old, I'm, I'm 50. I see you all right now doing the, doing the math. I'm 50. But back in 1977, a musician by the name of Meatloaf put out an album. And I can't tell you the name of the album. It's not church appropriate. And I'm not suggesting you go find the song either. I'm sure it's not. But I don't know why after 30 years of not hearing that song, it popped in my head and I can't get rid of it. But what, um, I, I guess Mr. Loaf, what he wrote, what he wrote was simply this. The name of the song is simply this, I'll do anything for love, but I won't do that. And that just stuck with me the last two weeks. And trust me, I didn't want to bring meatloaf up in my sermon. I really, really didn't. But I couldn't kick this idea that it's, it's almost like these two equal sides. I will do anything to be a good citizen, but I won't do that. I think that has a lot to do with where we find ourselves. I think our actions need to be something like this, that we will accept what we can in order to be a good citizen of Canada, that we will accept the, the rule of law, we'll accept the government that has been placed over us as far as we can, but we do know that we have to draw a line in the sand because we know that God's laws have to be obeyed above man's laws. And then once we discover where that line in the sand is drawn, 
we have to not compromise. We have to choose to not compromise. And, uh, and when I think about that in, in, in light of the, the environment we're living in, it's really hard. It's really hard not to decide for ourselves where we think that line should be. But I'm going to suggest to you that's exactly what we're supposed to do. But not because of COVID, but because of our faith in, in Jesus Christ. It should not be, we should not be living our lives based on what COVID tells us. We should be basing our lives on what God tells us. And, and this is where, if I haven't lost you yet, this is probably where I'm going to lose some of you. But I will tell you this, I am less interested in my rights as a Canadian citizen than I am in my responsibilities as a citizen of heaven. Philippians 3.20 says this, we are citizens of heaven where the Lord Jesus Christ lives. Oh, I lost it. And we are eagerly awaiting for him to return as our savior. And that's where my heart is. And whatever decisions we need to make, and we're gonna spend a, a bit of time, we're gonna do more than just discussion questions tonight. We're gonna spend a bit more time on it. But wherever we decide to draw those lines in the sand, because those are our decisions, our individual decisions to make, we have to know that when God's law comes up against man's law, we have to choose God's law, and we have to choose not to compromise. And so just before we get to the kind of the next section, I'd just like to pray. Lord, I'm just so thankful. I'm so thankful for your word. I'm so thankful for the story of Daniel. I'm just so thankful that uh, you speak into our lives in such a powerful way that we are, we are not led by the church. We are led by you. So thankful for that. And Lord, I just want to know. I just want to know what you would have me do. I think that's true for so many people, that when we choose to make a decision, when we don't let decisions make themselves for us, when we choose to make a decision, we're going to make a decision for you. I believe that. I believe that's true for so many people. But to take the time, Lord, and I'm just asking you to be with us as we take some time in the next few minutes to decide where do we draw a line in the sand and how do we know when we reach that point where we simply can no longer compromise. I'm thankful for that. I'm thankful for Kingsway. I'm thankful for this group of people, both in-house and online, Lord, who are willing to kind of dig into this with me, Lord, because it's not easy. And it, oftentimes it can be difficult to work our way through, but we want to be a people who look to you for answers not to our government. We want to look to you. I just pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen. So just as we, we bring up our, our discussion questions, are, they're a mess, to be honest. Don't try to figure it out right now. Uh, I wanted it to be on one screen so we didn't have to flip back and forth. But I, I would like to point out that being a good citizen, in my opinion, includes uh, activism. I'm not suggesting for a minute that you shouldn't push back against rules that are unfair. You, shouldn't, you should feel like you can protest. You should feel like you can sign petitions, write letters, stand up for the downtrodden in our, in our society. I believe that's what a good citizen does. But we're gonna kind of dig in a little bit further to talk about what, it, what is that line in the sand where we simply say, I can't do that. And if there's a law that says I have to, I won't. And if there's a law that says I can't, I'm still gonna. Where do we draw that line in the sand? And I think there's two parts for this discussion. The first would be this, are we asking the right questions? So I provided you with two guiding questions here. So when we think about what's going on in our COVID lives right now, ask yourself this, does this harm or does this hinder my relationship with God? And secondly, does this harm or hinder my ability to point others to him? And so for me, those are the guiding questions that when I need to think about how I feel, and I've just, I'm, there are many more, of course, but I've just thrown up about a dozen different 
restrictions or rules that either are in place, have been in place, or very likely could be in place if a third wave comes. And so I think we need to do two things. We need to just discuss with each other before we prayerfully make these sort of decisions to say, are these the right questions to ask? And I suggest to you there, there's, a lot of, there's a lot of debate there. At one point, I had five questions on that list. I just started taking the ones off. I, I just, the more I thought about it, the more I prayed about it, I just kept reducing it down. But are those the right questions? Should there be more questions that we would use to decide where we stand on difficult issues? And then I would simply ask, pick some of these off the list and ask yourself, where do I stand on this? With an understanding that I'm to be a good citizen as far as I can, where do I stand on these things? Do these things hinder or harm my relationship with him? And do they hinder or harm my ability to point other people towards him? And again, you may be adding questions. You may be deleting questions. This is not, this is not meant to be homework. It's meant to stimulate some discussion. I would also suggest strongly that you don't simply decide that you'll agree with everybody you're sitting with. You don't need to be making these decisions now, but I really think it's an important time to start thinking and to start praying and maybe even digging into Scripture and looking at what God says about these sort of things. And so when you think about things like masking, there's a lot of opinions about masking. There's a lot of opinions in the church about masking. And for me, and I, I mean this literally just for me, I look at this and I say, does wearing a mask hinder my relationship with Jesus? Does wearing a mask cause harm or hinder my ability to point others to Jesus? And I come up with the answer of no. So when I'm in the grocery store, I'm, I know I'm not wearing a mask now. This is a I should have picked a different example. But when I'm in the grocery store, I'm wearing my mask because I think that's what can be expected of a good citizen of Canada. What about some of these other things? I'll give you an example the other way. Singing sounds like a rather unimportant thing on the list there. But for me, I, I cannot imagine a church where I can't sing. I can't imagine accepting a rule that says you will no longer use your voice to praise your Father in heaven. For me, that's a line in the sand issue. And for me, that's something I hope I have the courage not to sway on. And so just that's, what, that's what we're going to do with our remaining time tonight. Um, in the groups that you're in, if you're willing to stay, um, you're always willing to kind of uh, reach out after if you have to leave. I think, uh, I think they're going to put my phone number. This is probably a terrible idea, but I'm going to put my phone number up there. If you want to reach out to me, you certainly can. But these are, this is my, my method, I guess, of for me to decide where do I stand on this? Because I don't want to be the person. I don't want to be the Christian who just lets it all happen to me and afterwards be filled with regret because just saying to myself, I should have stood up there. I should, have, I should have drawn a line in the sand, and I should not have compromised. But I also, I also want to be a good citizen of Canada, and I want to do my part to, to, to make things go more smoothly. And so that's a decision that's different for all of you. And I, my hope is you're not going to spend that time arguing with each other, but rather listening to each other so that you can take that away and start to think about where I draw my line in the sand. And so uh, the online audience, uh, we're going to send you on your way. Thanks so much for joining us. And uh, looking forward to seeing you again next week. And uh, if you're able to stay in the room, uh, we'd love to continue to talk with you.